Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quinta, you are, you, are, you are serving as your own microphone arm today. That looks exhausting. Do you think you have the physical stamina to keep this up for the whole, let's be honest, 90 minutes that we record these things? <laughs> Yes, yeah, so I I have been traveling, um, and I am currently in a location that does not have a good podcasting setup, um, at least somewhere that doesn't make me look like I'm being taken hostage. So I've propped myself up by a window, so you guys can see that I have a view of the beautiful outside. Uh, but that means that yes, I do have to hold my own microphone. But luckily. I have a 35-pound dog that doesn't like going up and down stairs, and that's really good for uh, building arm strength. So <laughs> I think go. I should there be okay. Go. See, I feel like this falls under the theme that I was talking about when we managed to get out our 9,000-word article less than 24 hours after the Fulton County indictment came out with exceptional analysis while we were going through some let us say, complicated writing environments, including Quinta sitting on the floor because she had no certain she had no furniture. And I was sitting at home because our office was closed due to lack of air conditioning. And my home is full of construction workers and screaming babies and all sorts of other things. And ben, oh, the ben sacrifices. Was in Scandinavia. Right. <laughs> yes. Somewhere this is what in we go through, listeners, to bring you this content. I exactly. Do. I do remember once finishing an article in a security line at an airport on my phone. That was that was the <laughs> one where I was like, my my thumbs felt like they were going to fall off by the time I was off. But something had happened in you know I think the impeachment Ukraine impeachment trial or something. I was like, oh, I got twenty minutes of the security <laughs> line. Let's make it happen. Yeah, I mean the the greatest of all time in this in this respect is uh, Maggie Haberman from the New York Times who. I know I've read at least one person write about like being on a panel with her, interviewing her or something, and it becoming clear that she was simultaneously writing an article on her phone as they were speaking. Oh, I love it. (laughs) I can't do that. I can't do that. That's impossible. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rational Security. I am one of your regular co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, back with you this week here in the virtual studio with one of my other regular co-hosts, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And she has exiled our third regular co-host, Alan Rosenstein, who is out on leave, unable even to access the interwebs to join us through his usual means. But we are thrilled to have with us. He's free. He's free at last, that Alan Rosenstein, out in the wilds, living his true mountain man life with a flannel shirt and letting that beard get even grosser. Uh, God bless, Alan. Uh, enjoy your enjoy your time away. We are thrilled to have with us our frequent, occasional special guest co-host, Natalie Orpit, executive editor of Lawfare. Natalie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, friends. It's great to be here. Here in the IRL studio with me, Nella. So we are giving Quinta the full Alan, as we like to call it, <laughs> in her virtual form. Quinta, you have been on the road truly enjoying a deep dive into the American South. How how has it been treating you and and how are you feeling in your new podcast zone? Well, I have to say traveling through the South and the the depths of summer is never, I think, truly advisable, but I definitely don't recommend doing it in the midst of a what I think we are now calling a historic heat dome. Heat dome. Um, so two thumbs down for that. But if it were like 20 degrees cooler. Um, it would have been very nice. My main lawfare relevant uh, anecdotes from the trip are that, you know, driving down from DC through Virginia, 
you go past a number of famous Civil War battlefields, which to me as a recovering Civil War nerd was very exciting. And I was particularly excited when it looked like uh, we were going to head through Danville, Virginia, Danville being the location of a notorious Civil War prison camp. Um, which happened to be where a Union soldier who I did some archival research on back in undergrad was in prison. So I was stoked about that. And then it turned out when we rolled up to Danville, there was a giant sign that said, welcome to Danville, last capital of the Confederacy and proud of it. And you may be asking yourself, how long was Danville the capital of the Confederacy? And the answer is one month. It was the capital from April 1865, as they were fleeing the Union Army, to May 1865, when they surrendered. So there you go. That's some fun historical facts for you. That is a, I say as a native Virginian and someone who spent a fair amount of time in the eastern, north, mid-Atlantic parts of the South, uh, that is quite a a deep draft of southern taste of the South, I feel like, on that one. That's good. You're getting a taste of it. Um, That's like a mint julep on a hot summer day outside of Derby with a big floppy hat on. So uh, I'm glad you're getting the experience. Yeah, it was a lot. And then I got out of the car to get some coffee and some very drunk women at brunch uh, petting my dog. (laughs) So it was a a real whiplash all around. I love it. Well, we are excited to have you with us in spite of your travels for what we are calling in the honor of your Southern experience, the Damn Danville edition of Rational Security. Because even as you have been out of Washington, D.C., Washington, D.C. has not been asleep, although it is a little sleepier because it is the month of August, which is wonderful. But we've seen a couple of big stories come out in the past week that we are excited to talk about with you, the listeners. First up this week, topic one, home to roost. A judge in the military commission trying Abdel Rahim al-Nashiri, a suspect in the 2000 USS Cole bombing, has ruled that his confession is inadmissible on the grounds that it was tainted by his prior torture and interrogation at the hands of U.S. officials, even though the confession itself was extracted from a non-coercive, quote-unquote, clean team. What does this mean for the future of the Nashiri trial and of the military commissions as a whole? Topic two, disqualification qualified. A pair of leading conservative constitutional scholars has reignited the discussion surrounding Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, a provision that purports to disqualify various individuals involved with insurrection and related acts, arguing that it is self-executing and excludes former President Trump from the presidency, among many other people, for participating in the January 6th, the events of January 6th and other actions relating to the 2020 election. How persuasive are their arguments and what impact will they actually have on the 2024 election? And topic three, a distinctive Musk. The New Yorker has run a profile of Elon Musk, focusing in substantial part on the complicated but central role he and his company, SpaceX, have come to play in Ukrainian military efforts, despite his frequent flirtations with Russian President Vladimir Putin. What should we make of Musk's important role in national security affairs? Are there better ways for the U.S. government to approach it? For our first topic, Quinta, let me hand it over to you to get us started. So this is a a dive into sort of lawfare classic flavor. Uh, We used to do an enormous amount of covering the military commissions in Guantanamo. We still cover them, but unfortunately, other events have somewhat taken up some of the space that we used to to use. Um, But it's always good to keep an eye on what's happening down there in Guantanamo. And on Friday, we got a pretty significant ruling from the military judge in the USS Cole bombing case um, against uh, Abdel Rahim al-Nashiri which threw out confessions that Nashiri had made to the federal government um, at Guantanamo, 
on the grounds that confessions that are received as a result of torture are not admissible during military commission proceedings, at least in this particular instance. So there's a lot to untangle here. There's a very, very long procedural backstory, um, which Natalie, I I definitely want to get your thoughts on. But before that, Scott, let me just start with you. Can you just walk us through what exactly the judge ruled here? Because I do think that it's important to understand, given that military commission's proceedings are Uh, somewhat distinct from the typical proceedings in court that our listeners know and love. Sure. Let me take a crack at it, and I'll invite Natalie to correct me or or supplement um, once I'm done. My understanding of this ruling and and where it comes in is that, uh, of course, we're dealing here with a suspect that spent several years after he was captured by the U.S. government being held in a variety of black sites and then later non-black sites and open sites where he was subjected to a range of interrogation techniques, many of which crossed the line into what most people would call torture. Uh, Certainly coercive, by design coercive, deliberately painful, intimidating, and doing other things to try and force information as part of this interrogation. And importantly, I'll just say actions that the government has conceded are torture. Yes, and and that's not really in dispute, even that they cross that line. The question here is that after several years in the case of Nashiri, and it's worth noting he is not the only one individual being tried by the military commissions who's in a similar situation, but he is kind of the tip of the spear in terms of the person whose matter has come up and who's, uh, in, who, where this issue has been ruled on first. He was held for several years in these sorts of conditions where he's under kind of various constant degrees of interrogation or recurring cycles of interrogation, torture, intimidation, and then was transferred to the custody of what is called a clean team that engaged with him on a separate sort of interrogation. This was led by professional investigators, had a Justice Department attorney overseeing it, um, had FBI agents and other people involved who did a much more conventional investigation and interrogation of him, similar to what we do with law enforcement, where it was non-coercive. In fact, they sat down with him, provided him with tea as part of their account, repeatedly said things like, you're the boss, you're in control. If you want to stop talking, you can stop talking, providing all these verbal reassurances to try and establish that he was in control and at no risk of coercion and that it wasn't a coercive environment. The question is, can the government actually effectively do that? Oh, I should say, and at that point, Nishiri confessed to substantially to a lot of the conduct at issue in this trial. And they're trying to get that confession admitted into evidence under the military commissions, which is something that's Otherwise possible, except for this coercive element, there are some other legal issues that might arise. But primarily, this is focused on this coercive element saying, is a confession actually voluntary? Is it actually admissible just because it is granted to this clean team or secured by this clean team after years and years of interrogation, mistreatment, and torture uh, that this individual has been subjected to? And particularly because while the clean team is the one conducting the interrogation, the individual was still being held by the U.S. government and still being held uh, by people uh, associated to some degree, if not as directly, with the prior mistreatment and coercion of him. The judge in this case ruled that that's not the case. He openly admitted uh, – this is Judge Lanny Acosta, who I actually worked with in Iraq in a weird twist of events 10 years ago uh, and so have had passing with uh, – on occasion, and he ruled essentially, no, this is not admissible. Um, you know, it's a close call. He admits that there are societal consequences and potentially downsides of not admitting something of this sort, but he just did not think the clean team was provided uh, nearly enough insulation 
to say that this is actually a voluntarily given confession of the sort that would make it admissible in this case. I don't know whether there is a state intent um, to appeal this further. Uh, I would be a little surprised if there wasn't, uh, as a, given that it's been a long, hard-fought issue, but I don't know as of yet. Um, but it's pretty notable. I mean, this has been an argument that has been brooding in the background of the military commissions for at least a decade, more than a decade, really in a way kind of throughout the military commission process. And this is the first ruling that we've seen so squarely on it saying that these things are inadmissible. And uh, it's a big loss for the prosecution uh, in these sorts of matters because absent these sorts of confessions, building the case is much more difficult. Not necessarily impossible, but much more difficult given how long, much time has passed, uh, how geographically remote some of these actions were, and the limited other available evidence that they may be able to bring to bear. Does that sound right to you, Natalie? What have, what have I missed on this? No, that's largely right. I'll I'll just um, add that one important clarification here is that the question is not whether this evidence is admissible at trial. It's a question of whether this evidence is admissible during proceedings. Um, this is the larger context for this decision. Um, this was about a motion to suppress, um, and I, I don't actually remember the scope of the or the context in which the motion to suppress was brought. But this case is still very far from trial, um, so this was not a you know on the eve of trial decision about whether to admit into evidence at trial some key information that the prosecution wanted to bring. The larger context for this case, and by the way, the reason that I don't know what the motion to suppress was about is because if you want to look at the filing on the Military Commission's website, you can't because it's still under review. I'm saying that in air quotes um, because the Military Commission— how long has it been under review for? Um, Since—let's see—sometime in 2022. I don't remember. So—and it'll be any day now. <laughs> February 2022. Um, which, by the way, under regulations um, in the military commissions, the reviewers have to post a publicly available copy of any filing that is redacted as necessary within 15 days. So, you know, they're right on track. I should say, by the way, um, just as a sort of disclosure, um, I represented a defendant in the military commissions for about eight years. Um, I have no personal knowledge of this case. This is not my client. And I don't know anything beyond what's public about this particular case or this defendant. So just want to throw that out there. So, yes, I, I, you cannot look at the, um, the motion because it is not there, as is the case for many, many filings. The broader context for this, I will just say, is that this reads as a sort of positive opinion insofar as you are someone who is worried about um, the use of torture evidence. It's it's really quite unequivocal. The judge spends about two-thirds of the opinion walking through the details of Nashiri's torture, which are really excruciating. And I will just beg people to actually read these because I think we've become so blind and accustomed to what kind of torture we're actually talking about. But I don't want to spend too much time on that now because the reason for this segment is something different. But reading this decision, I couldn't help but be a little irritated by the fact that it it gives that impression because this is the same judge who in 2021 ruled that torture evidence can be used in pretrial proceedings. So this is all 
in the context of interpreting a provision of the Military Commissions Act that is really a pretty unequivocal prohibition on torture. It says, no statement obtained by the use of torture or by cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment, whether or not under color of law, shall be admissible in a military commission. The context for the previous ruling was there was a discovery dispute that arose out of the defense's motion arguing that the government had not complied with its Brady obligations. That motion was made in 2016. Um, the issue had been litigated for years and years and years, and during the course of which the defense learned that the government had been using in its ex parte filings to the court statements that had been obtained through torture. The government, the defense obviously argued that those um, statements should not be allowed um, for these ex parte filings. The government argued that the prohibition in the statute only applied to um, evidence for the purpose of admission at trial. So that was the reason for my clarification, Scott. Judge Acosta ruled that that is the correct interpretation of the statute, that it's it's just fine to use torture evidence in pretrial proceedings. You just can't use it at trial. The defense filed for a writ of mandamus to the D.C. Circuit when I think it's fair to say when DOJ lawyers were presented with the previous position of the government that they would have to defend a position that torture evidence was just fine as long as it was only pretrial, they got up at the D.C. Circuit and said, actually, we've revisited our previous position and we will never, ever use torture evidence. The thing is that this mooted the case before the D.C. Circuit. So there is no binding precedent or interpretation about the use of torture evidence in the commissions. The government had agreed, as I said, before the D.C. Circuit um, and had represented that it was not going to use torture evidence. But the fact of the matter is they are still litigating in two different contexts the use of torture evidence. One is also in Nishiri. There is a third-party witness whose information that they and the government intends to use in Nishiri's case was obtained through torture. So this would be an admission of evidence obtained from a third party under torture. That's still in contention. Another case is a defendant who is arguing that there was torture evidence used in his referral to the commissions for trial. Um, so these are still live issues because the D.C. Circuit didn't get a chance to actually weigh in on what is the correct interpretation of this provision. I'll stop there because there's so much more to say about the absurdity of this case, which I really see as a case study for how insane the military commissions are, but I don't want to dominate the conversation too much. I mean, I do think it's worth mentioning at least one more aspect of the absurdity, which is that, am I right, Natalie, that even this ruling could potentially get tossed because of the defense's own effort to disqualify the judge? So I think that would depend on um, what the remedy is. The, the irony here, which Quinta and I have talked about, is that um, this very same case, several years ago, a previous judge on the case had failed to disclose an application that he had to become an immigration judge. And as a result of that uh, failure to disclose, the D.C. Circuit threw out three and a half years of his rulings um, on the grounds that 
he had a conflict of interest when he was making those rulings. Um, this judge is – there is currently pending a challenge to um, him because he, however, did disclose that he was applying for a job with the Air Force. He actually has retired. So I'm not sure – even though the motion is still pending, I'm not sure – whether the defense will withdraw it or not. I, I don't know what the scope of their concerns is. But I think it would be up to the D.C. Circuit whether to, you know, throw out any rulings or create some other remedy depending on the outcome of that decision. Yeah, I mean, he he did a ruling in, his, in the actual military commission uh, on his own disqualification and said essentially, look, my read of the Nishiri D.C. Circuit opinion is that if I disclose the whole problem with what we saw the prior judge do uh, is that you didn't disclose it. It was a secret right. for several months and that's what tainted the whole proceeding. I very openly have said, I do this. I don't believe I have a conflict. Uh, I don't think there was independent view that he had a conflict other than the fact he was applying for this job. And so he distinguished it from on the sherry grounds. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's certainly a remedy that seems on the table at least they do this. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the real question we have to think about here is what this does for – um, the status of the military commissions as a whole, right? Like Nashiri is a important case in part because it is often the first one that a lot of these issues come up in because it was kind of not not a test case, but kind of one of the earlier cases brought. It's kind of further along. It also leaves like just one defendant and it's around the USS Cole, um, which is a slightly more constrained or investigation than the uh, multiple co-defendants that are in the Khalid Sheikh Mohammed trial, um, which is a separate military commission proceeding that actually relates to 9-11 and has KSM and a number of other very high-profile defendants that all were subjected, or at least most I know KSM was, and I believe others were as well, subjected to almost identical treatment as Nashiri, right? So it raises the exact same issue. Uh, I know KSM has a substantial confession that they're trying to get admitted. I wouldn't, I believe the other, some of the other defendants do as well. I don't know if all of them do. So this is a big problematic precedent for the government, right? Like, and, and that really enters in because we know, at least in that case, we've heard tell of ongoing negotiations with the government to say, we want to plea. We are maybe open to a plea agreement suggesting the possibility of a plea agreement where they the government would waive the pursuit of the death penalty, which is being pursued both in this case and in the KSM cases. And in exchange for waiving the death penalty, would accept a plea out to some lesser offense for a, penal- for a penalty that is less than death, probably life imprisonment, I would guess, at this point. That is a deal that we saw. No, the Obama administration was at least exploring towards the end of its time in office. Um, it was being explored in the early Trump administration years. Then there was a sudden turnover in the leadership at the military commissions. I think there's good reason to think the Trump administration was involved to various extents to shutting down that effort. We know former President Trump spoke very negatively about uh, kind of deals with military commission and at various points promised to restart the military commissions and to, uh, you know, essentially keep people there forever um, and do whatever he can to prevent any of them from seeing any sort of uh, finality of their process. And now the Biden administration is in this position to say, well, None of these cases really seem to be going anywhere very quickly. Nashiri just saw two or three years of its proceedings wiped out because of this legal fault. This keeps things like this keep happening with the military commissions because it is a tricky area of law, tricky institutions with a lot of legal rules that people are innovating on and that keep end up because there's no defined rules and people keep treading across different lines having to start restart proceedings or having to have a massive, massive years-long pretrial proceedings before they even get to any sort of actual trial for these individuals. And it's not clear when that's going to happen. And now this just wiped out what was probably the most compelling piece of evidence for the prosecution. 
So you would have to think the government's incentive for pleading these things out just got way, way higher if this ruling stands. And frankly, I think it seems very likely that it will, even though perhaps it's going to go on review and then go to the D.C. Circuit and go to other places and there may be other uh, legal steps before it's like truly final. But this – I think the writing has been on the wall that this was very likely to be the ultimate outcome around this issue for a while. That was driving the incentive – for the prior for the Obama administration, the Biden administration to try and get out of these proceedings and bring them to some sort of negotiated finality. And this seems to be importantly both an incentive to do so and perhaps something very concrete they can point to for people who would criticize those efforts and say, look, we really don't have any other choice on this. This is better for everyone. So I think the odds of that happening have gone up higher. Probably not going to happen before the election, I would guess. But uh, perhaps in 2025. Right. Can I can I say, yeah, I mean, I feel like an additional complication, which you kind of hinted at there by mentioning the way that uh, different administrations of different political persuasions have handled this whole thing is the political aspect, right? Like, I, it's really hard for me to say that the Biden administration is going to want you know, to hand Fox News a bunch of headlines about Biden reaches deal with 9-11 attackers or something like that um, in advance of the election. I think that that's deeply regrettable and not right, but I, it feels like those political headwinds are very present. At the same time, you know, if there is a Republican victor in 2024, the clock is going to be ticking really, really quickly to get this stuff out of the way, lest it get mired for another four years um, in just endless dragged out hearings with no hope of resolution. I don't know. Natalie, does that sound right to you? Yeah, I mean, I think the theme of Guantanamo is no one wants it to be their problem. Everyone knows that the, you know, the as the chief defense counsel likes to say, or former chief defense counsel like to say, the original sin of Guantanamo is torture. It's created the problems. Um, I mean, as Scott said, the entire system was created whole cloth. And so every single legal issue you can imagine needs to be litigated and tested because it's so lacking in any precedent or comparison. But ultimately, yes, it does come down to the fact that, you know, of the very, very few people who are even in military commissions to be tried, torture is always going to be an issue. And it's going to come up in different ways. And it's going to significantly complicate the prosecution's ability to put on a case. There is one other thing that I think goes to this question, too, about administrations and politics but that I do just want to emphasize, which is that there is more of a through line in how the government has the, – the types of positions that the government has taken in the military commissions versus what administrations have taken, um, which is an interesting dynamic that we're not used to seeing. But as I was describing here, DOJ, when presented with the uh, prospect of having to maintain a position that it was OK with torture evidence – in pretrial proceedings, changed its position and promised that the government would never make those arguments again, that didn't seem to translate, as I was describing, to prosecutors at Guantanamo. And that's an, an interesting dichotomy. You know, you would think that because the top of DOD is also a member of the Biden administration and all of the political appointees obviously are as well, that when uh, DOJ announces an unequivocal policy about its interpretation of this of this statute that would hold everywhere, and it does not seem to. And I don't know if there's a complicated rabbit hole I won't go down 
about how command influence works in the context of the commissions, which has some overlap but some important differences um, with the UCMJ, um, which may account for some of the space between the government lawyers' positions at the commissions versus government lawyer positions in Article Three courts. But it's very complicated. And like I said, the the main theme of all of this, except the people who are actually litigating these cases, is I don't want this to be my problem. I want to kick the can down the road. And that's why it's been, you know, Nashiri was captured in 2002 and tortured for years and years and years before he even was considered for trial. And just no one wants to deal with that history. Well, and let me actually take one step back and correct something I said, which or, or at least in, introduce a nuance in here that I think is worth bearing in mind is that I think relates to this. It's just that I actually don't think the decision to settle this actually isn't, it's up to the Biden administration directly, like in terms of the political leadership. There's a lot of autonomy by both – by well, certainly by the defense attorneys, which are Department of Defense attorneys as well – or Department of Defense lawyers as well, but particularly with the prosecution as well because of the command influence question, because of, frankly, the structure of these things, some unique things about kind of military culture uh, also enter in as well. So I think the actual people who actually get to decide this essentially are the prosecution in the first place and then has to be – if I recall correctly, I'm doing this from memory, so I have the details wrong. I think it actually has to be signed off on by the convening authority. And so that those are the people who actually get to decide when this happens. And there are people who who I, the current convening authority I think is still the guy who was appointed in the closing days of the Trump administration, Jeffrey Wood. I think he he was as of a couple months ago. Uh, so now I'm now I'm trying to look online and, and correct myself. So if I get that wrong, I apologize. I'm going to try and find out. But the key point being. It's not somebody who necessarily is lockstep with the Biden administration on political views or election cycles. So there is actually a very good chance this this will happen. People may not be excited about it happening for for the election, was what I maybe perhaps should have said. I was trying to say. If it, I think your point, Quinta, is exactly right. Like this could become a hot potato politically, as it so often has in the past. The dynamics are a little different these days, right? The the we certainly did see former President Trump really for a, a little while play up Guantanamo Bay, right, in like 2019, say, I'm going to reopen Guantanamo Bay. I'm going to send people there after we had a couple of terrorism-related incidents in the United States. Those those talking points like actually went away after a certain point relatively quickly and faced a lot of pushback in terms of like actually implementing any sort of policy. They didn't actually lead to any meaningful policy change except perhaps a obstacles to effort to transfer detainees outside of Guantanamo Bay. We didn't see any effective transfers, I don't believe, take place after those that shift in position by the Trump administration until the early Biden administration. Uh, I think even for people who had uh, completed their sentence and had for, or for whom they had reached terms to kind of negotiate their removal from Guantanamo Bay. But those are more, much more. Yeah, and, there, and it's worth saying there, there was at least one person, I can't remember their name right now, but who was basically cleared to go. And literally the only thing that had to have happened was that uh, Secretary of Defense Ash Carter, Obama's Secretary of Defense, had to sign the paperwork and it didn't happen for whatever reason. And he was stuck there for the rest of the Trump administration. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, the, but it's worth bearing in mind those transfers of people being detained are a much more politics and policy-driven process than the military commissions. The military commissions being separate from the detention authority or at least a a separate channel of authority similar to the detention authority but where we're actually trying these people. And those trial decisions are are more insulated from political influence or at least are supposed to be. So, you know, you're going to see this become – we might see this become a big political issue GOP has different views on national security, different views, frankly, on foreign relations than they did eight years ago. Um, And again, it's not clear to me how successful Trump's effort to dig in on Guantanamo Bay actually proved politically. So maybe it's not 
something we're going to see become a central point, but it seems like it's likely to come up during debates or during other kind of items leading up to the 2024 election. And we all should be prepared for, frankly, a lot of stupid, stupid talking points uh, to be developed around this stuff. As this decision really demonstrates, it's not clear what the route forward is otherwise. Um, it's just not clear where this actually goes. And people just don't seem interested in really wrestling with that, unfortunately. Yeah, and I do just want to say other one other thing to emphasize your point, Scott. Um, there are currently 30 people left at Guantanamo out of a height at one point um, of 780 people. But only 10 of the 30 are in active military commissions, proceedings. And it does not look like any of the remaining 19, because one is currently serving a sentence, will ever be referred for charges. So these complicated problems of torture evidence, et cetera, really only matter in the context of 10 people. Um, and it's, you know, many of those proceedings are far from any sort of, all of them are far from any sort of resolution. So talking about practical solutions versus politically fraught resolutions is is really distilled when you think about the fact that there are so few people who are implicated by it. From one set of laws that only applies to a few people to another set of laws that only applies to a few people, we think, maybe. Let us discuss, as Scott mentioned up top, the 14th Amendment, Section 3, which is a handy little provision that was passed um, just after the Civil War. And um, I will not read the entirety of the amendment, which is extremely convoluted and circuitous, but basically it provides that if someone has previously engaged in insurrection or rebellion or given aid or comfort to the enemies of the United States, that person is disqualified from holding public office. So of late, there has been in the press um, a just an explosion of analysis of this provision and whether or not it applies to Trump uh, such that he should be disqualified from running for president in the 2024 election. Um, one of the main contributions has been this law review article that Scott was talking about by William Bode and Michael Paulson um, writing that they believe that, in fact, the 14th Amendment Section 3 does di- disqualify Trump and that it is self-executing, we can get into the nuances of the law and what the debate is. I do want to throw out that Lawfare began covering this question in 2021, January of 2021. And so everyone's just catching up with our robust debate that we have published on many times since then. This is actually the topic I was my, – my son was born uh, – a few days after January 6th. And so as I was several weeks late uh, from when he was supposed to be born, and so I was anxiously awaiting becoming a father, this is the topic I dug into, uh, first in my living room and then the hospital room, being like, well, I got a day or two on my computer, something else. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I, I'm kind of bummed as I read through this. I was like, oh, man, I remember Griffin's case. I should have uh, I should have done something with that once I came out of the haze of being a father. But no such luck, for better or for worse. They beat me to the punch three, three years later. <laughs> Well, so Scott, as one of the originators of this uh, discussion, less, even though it was uh, in my own mind, <laughs> in your own mind, well, it's okay because you know we published it a lot on Lawfare. So, Scott, tell us 
why is everyone finally catching up with Lawfare? <laughs> it, it is a uh, really interesting entry into this conversation that has been happening for a long time. There are a number of articles that they acknowledge, one of which is on Lawfare, uh, that they cite as kind of one of the leading articles that they uh, have, uh, that they reference by Dan Hemmel. Uh, it's called uh, a guide to, I can't remember the exact title now, it's like a guide to disqualifying people under Section 3, a how to guide that we, we published uh, you know, sometime in 2021, if I recall correctly. That is a great piece. And Dan's always always writes great stuff for us. And they cite that and a few other articles as saying these are seminal pieces that have really done a lot of the legwork for us. They're very open and acknowledging we're building on this and trying to be a little more comprehensive, systematic, and build out an understanding of how we should interpret this provision uh, and particularly how it should be implemented, understood to be implemented. And so what the article says, which is a little different from prior takes, is this essentially – is that this provision, it's worth noting Section 3 essentially says people who have – certain people who have given a constitutional oath in office, which is a fairly range uh, – far range of federal and state office holders, those people, if they engage in insurrection or give aid or comfort to the enemy of the country, which are two actual fairly separate, at least the way uh, uh, these authors interpret it, two different disqualifying actions, are disqualified from holding office in the future – and it's worth noting a, a, they would disqualify from holding a slightly broader range of offices than they would have had to have for the, for the initial oath. So even more disqualified, uh, maybe disqualified from other offices that wouldn't themselves trigger the application of this provision um, unless Congress excuses that disqualification by a vote of two-thirds of both chambers. And then there's a question of there's a couple of uh, laws that Congress has enacted usually in, in the post-Civil War era um, where some people have argued that they actually did in fact – provide pretty broad um, amnesty of the effects of Section 3 and Bowden Pearson say, no, that's not the case. The the key argument that they come out with is essentially this is a very, very broad constitutional disqualification provision that they think is valid. Um, but they aren't shy from saying, look, this is essentially saying that if you look at what people thought of what was meant by insurrection and aid or comfort at the time, it applies to all sorts of actions that would be supportive of an insurrection or rebellion or an enemy of the United States, foreign or domestic, and disqualify people on the base of those actions. And that includes strict speech acts. Um, they look at pretty clearly at contemporaneous um, sources to say it was understood that, frankly, just speaking out in favor or lending strictly speech-oriented support to these efforts, for example, discouraging people from uh, participating, joining uh, the Union Army, or encouraging people to resist the Union Army um, in the context of the Reconstruction era or end of the Civil War era, that itself is sufficient. Things that we would consider generally protected by the First Amendment is sufficient to trigger Section 3. And they note that that means that Section 3 says they should be disqualified. Uh, and the First Amendment, there's no exception for this, for First Amendment protected activity. This supersedes the First Amendment because it was enacted later in time. It was enacted in as part of the 14th Amendment. First Amendment is the First Amendment, right? So it, it is a really, really broad swath provision that disqualifies a whole range of people. They don't find any of the arguments that the statutes that uh, did kind of restore a bunch of the eligibility for office for people associated with the Confederacy after the Civil War were intended to look forward – be forward-looking towards future disqualification under this provision, um, although they don't rule out the, the possibility that Congress could do that in a way that certain scholars have, other scholars have. And then they say essentially – if you take all this – to put all this together, it suggests that a huge swath of people involved in January 6th should be disqualified from office. Um, and that includes former President Trump for the presidency. 
that's the real kicker. That's the real uh, line that that they kind of close on. And they argue that uh, perhaps most importantly that this disqualification is self-executing. Um, there is a argument tied to this case, Griffin's case, uh, that was a kind of odd case decided by Chief Justice Salmon Chase but not on behalf of the Supreme Court shortly after the Civil War that said essentially Section 3 isn't has to be implemented by the federal government in different ways to have any effect. They say that that's, the case is just wrongly decided and isn't binding and shouldn't be treated as binding or even persuasive authority by anyone. In fact, if you read this, it, it is just a disqualification provision, meaning all the normal legal mechanisms that we use would use to disqualify people for other qualifications for the presidency or other public office – of which there are several, you know, including state authorities to determine who gets on the ballot, challenges potentially in Congress, although they actually say that that's they, – they, they are dubious as to whether those are valid or not for disqualification grounds. All sorts of different measures that you would say – you the same ways you would try and disqualify someone, for example, not being a U.S. national and trying to run for office that's, where that's a requirement or not meeting the age requirements for the presidency, the same processes should apply here for disqualification for this broad Section 3 disqualification. So it's a pretty stirring argument um, and it's a pretty – makes the Section 3 a provision that, again, hasn't really been meaningfully applied since the early 20th century and even then kind of limited context of legislative bodies, Congress, deciding the uh, you know whether certain people can hold seats in Congress, says that, no, this is actually a really powerful authority and is a major position in our constitutional order that, again, supersedes pretty well-established uh, rights in the Constitution, including rights core to political speech like First Amendment. They don't think it's a bad thing. They think it's a reasonable thing. And other scholars that have done research that they kind of point to, and I, although I don't think they discuss at length, pointing out that a lot of other democracies around the world have similar sort of disqualification provisions for people who essentially engage in insurrection or, or similar acts. Uh, and that kind of justifies it. Um, but they're not shy about it. It's really broad impact. Um, for me, as I've talked about the podcast, that gives me reservations, which I'm happy to get in, give into or get into. Um, but that's the outline of their argument. Um, and it's worth noting it's compelling because these guys are established kind of up-and-coming conservative scholars. A lot of people think this will really be persuasive for conservatives in the conservative judiciary. And that really matters because – Almost all of this, most avenues by which this would be enforced, particularly to former President Trump, less so for other officials, but particularly for Trump, are going to end in the U.S. Supreme Court. So the ultimate decision will be, does the U.S. Supreme Court agree with this method they've developed for interpreting this? And they root it in originalism uh, and other principles that are meant to speak to conservative justices on the Supreme Court who grew up in a conservative originalist legal tradition, um, that both these guys are seen as kind of major scholars in that tradition. And so the idea is that this – may well serve to persuade the court to uphold this understanding of Section 3, although whether that happens or not is is far down the road. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yeah, I think this is a, it's a really interesting document. 
I it is I think like a hundred it is one hundred and twenty six pages, and I will fully confess that I have not had time to closely read all one hundred and twenty six pages. But I I have read as much of it as I can manage, and it's pretty interesting. I mean, I think the extent to which you find it persuasive probably depends a lot about how you think about originalist legal reasoning, since it's very, as you say, Scott, very firmly rooted in that tradition and intentionally and explicitly so, right? Um, And Bode is someone who's done a lot of work to kind of flesh out thinking seriously about what originalism means, again, whether or not you you, uh, adhere to that view of the Constitution. I think it's also interesting how even within the article itself, it's kind of situating itself within the conservative legal movement more broadly. It cites to a report that was written by a number of uh, conservative legal scholars and judges, um, including uh, Thomas Griffith, formerly of the DC Circuit, Michael Ludig, who we've all heard a lot about, Michael McConnell, and others called Lost Not Stolen, the conservative case that Trump lost and Biden won the 2020 election, which I've seen circulate a lot on sort of the like anti-Trump right as a kind of way to say, you know, look, Trump lost. And by saying that Trump lost, I'm not being a rabid lefty. I'm pointing to, you know, these stolid conservative luminaries. And so I think that this kind of fits very well into that category. Um, And I do think it's in that sense, it's a sort of politically important piece of scholarship. There's not a huge cohort of people who are members of the conservative legal movement in whatever role they happen to hold. And anti-Trump isn't the right term, but open to following this reasoning to its logical conclusion, let's say, in terms of Trump's disqualification. But there are some, and they hold important positions, Scott, as you were saying. Um, and so I think that there there is a value in sort of folks who are firmly situated within this world and comfortable in it in putting forward these kinds of arguments in serious ways. And that does matter. What it means in the long run, I think, is kind of complicated. Um, There's an interesting op-ed in the Washington Post by Ned Foley, a law professor who specializes in election law, about how exactly you would want to get this on the table in terms of Trump's um, eligibility to be president. And he suggests that basically you should have some state legislative body somewhere, ideally in a swing state, but it could be in a blue state. All you need is basically to get get the law on the book so then you can have a case and then litigate it up to the Supreme Court so you can get a decision one way or another before the election. I think if I read Ned correctly, his point is not that, you know, and therefore the Supreme Court will rubber stamp this and Trump will be disqualified, but rather that people deserve to know before they cast a vote whether or not the person they're casting a vote for is eligible. Um, Again, whatever you think of the argument. And so there's a premium on basically fast tracking this and getting it before the justices. How that would vote, I don't know. If you made me bet, I would say the bet that this goes anywhere is probably pretty slim, but I do think it matters for the reasons that that I set out. So yeah, interesting, interesting, a uh, high impact scholarship, let's say. The dream that we all aspire to. Exactly. Well, I, I want to just add too, since we haven't mentioned it, there actually have been people who have been disqualified based on the third, the section three of the 14th amendment. Um, the first one, which um, I'm just going to keep plugging Lawfare's excellent content. Our colleague, Roger Parloff, wrote about and uh, 
followed closely was a county commissioner in New Mexico, I believe, who was disqualified by a judge. But one of the interesting questions here, which they get into in the article and has been debated in other pieces as well, is who makes the decision here? Is this something that Congress needs to enact legislation to put into specific terms, or is it something that courts can weigh in on only after there's a dispute before them? Or is it something that, you know, every election official in the United States is charged with executing themselves because by removing Trump from the ballot, um, because they've sworn to uphold the Constitution? Um, so that's one of the the debates Um, The other thing, which is unrelated, but relates to something that you had said, Quinta, which I think is interesting and important to note, um, as you said, this was really an argument on the basis of originalism, which is, as we know, the dominant theory in particularly in conservative scholarship, but really at this point, not only pretty much any argument you make has to have some originalist anchor to it. We are all originals now, as Elena Kagan has, has been known to pronounce. <laughs> exactly. To me, you know, reading this uh, reading this piece, I was reminded of yet another piece that Lawfare has published, which is to say that, um, you know, the, the criticism of originalism, which I really share, is that at a certain point, you're asking judges to be historians. And historians are trained in history for many years, and that training is different than the training to be a judge. So they do get into some originalist discussions about, you know, the the context of this amendment, et cetera. But we published an article um, by an expert in this era who talked in great, great depth about Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, not only in the context of the admittedly very sparse case law about its application, but also about the terminology that it uses as a reflection of what the drafters of the amendments understood the terms it was using to mean. He laid out a a complicated but very insightful um, argument about how those terms that we mentioned up top as being particularly contentious, the engaging in insurrection or rebellion on for number one, and number two, the giving aid or comfort to the enemies of the United States as number two, He goes through in great detail what those terms meant at the time, how case law interpreted those terms as they existed in other places at the time, how judges at the time weighed in on them, how legal commentaries weighed in on them, how jury instructions weighed in on them. It's it's very detailed. And to me, that's a more, um, if you are going to be an originalist, you should have dug into that as well. It doesn't come out differently than this article argues, but it's it's still a an interesting additional context that I think, you know, my continued critique of originalism is like, when do you stop? Is was this argument insufficient because it didn't dig into this additional history and interpretive relevant precedent? So at the risk of sounding like a broken record, I've talked about this on the podcast before, I want to share my reservations about Section 3, uh, and then I invite myself to be savaged uh, by my co-host. Um, but this article really resurrected them or reinforced them or made me feel more confident in why why this triggers alarm bells for me. Although I, I will say I think it's slightly more qualified alarm bells than um, I don't want to overstate kind of the danger of this. Um, but the point that 
these two authors really come to, um, which I think is correct if you're going to read section three through a, uh, you know, a, a lens that leans on originalism or the intent of the people who authored it, which is, again, is, is kind of an accepted mode. And it's one that lines up with what Mark Graber and other folks have written about on Lawfare and elsewhere who have looked at this, is the idea that this is a really, really broad category of disqualifying conduct that applies to a pretty broad category of people who can be disqualified. The latter is not universal, right? It's just people who have sworn an oath to the Constitution, but it encompasses most government officers, federal officers, state officials, state legislatures, a lot of different people who are involved in the public space um, who will have thrown an oath. I don't know whether it reaches military officers off the top of my head. I can't recall it now, but I think it I think it does, if I recall correctly, at least the way some people read it. I don't remember specifically this article, but it's a pretty broad category of people who could be disqualified if they've have these category, these positions in the past. And it's worth noting it's any point in the past, not just actively doing it when they engage in insurrection. Um, and then the scope of disqualifying conduct is also really broad. Again, it's insurrection or rebellion defined as, as by these authors, or I think is pretty consistent, basically meaning a organized effort to resist the application of the law or to resist governance by the government of the United States or the 50 states. <clears throat> I think those are actually pretty well-established definitions, uh, although they do a good job rooting them in contemporaneous case law in other places here, and then aiding or comfort an enemy. Uh, and again, that is that is not actually just in relation to the insurrection rebellion, at least as these authors read it. They're saying it's any enemy, foreign or domestic, aiding or comfort them. And again, aiding or comfort in particular encompasses a whole range of speech acts, uh, acts that would normally, we would expect to be, uh, at least raise a question as to whether it's protected by the First Amendment. That's not unusual, right? Like we see in the Humanitarian Law Project, which gets a nod in this in this article, uh, a Supreme Court case that said essentially like, well, you know, pure speech is one thing, but even if you're coordinating speech with another party, you're educating another party, you're in somehow coordinating with them in lobbying or engaging in speech activities, that alone might be saving them resources and is not protected by the First Amendment, right? It's really only... First Amendment really reaches autonomous speech, not coordinating with another party, in that case, terrorist groups. But it still is a whole range of conduct. And then it really, the idea of what it, who a domestic enemy is, is really broadly categorized and isn't really well defined here because they don't really have a clear idea of that, right? Um, or a foreign enemy for that reason. And so you think of cases like, uh, you know, the Red Scare, right? Where obviously you saw a lot of Americans be lumped in some rightly, most wrongly, with the idea that because they were communists or leftists, they were associated with the Soviet Union. And it's not hard to imagine people making an argument saying, well, you gave aid or comfort to the uh, enemy, the Soviet Union, here by perhaps giving money to the Communist Party or joining the Communist Party at some point or engaging in other sort of socialist activities, right, or just speaking out in favor of socialist viewpoints. To put a more contemporary lens on it that I've raised before, this makes raises concerns for me for certain aspects of the Black Lives Matter movement or of, you know, the kind of uh, Occupy adjacent movement that we saw in Portland and other places in the West Coast during the pandemic, where you really did see, particularly in the latter, an organized effort to resist government, right? Like that is closer to the definition of insurrection. And if you see organized efforts to engage in civil disobedience, I'm not sure that's as easy as to divide from insurrection or rebellion as these authors define it. Now, you could see a Supreme Court come in and say, well, we're going to interpret these provisions so it doesn't reach that sort of conduct. And maybe there's a principal basis for doing it. But part of the self-executing nature of this restriction is that you know, a lot of the decision-making authority, not for President Trump or other big figures, but for other people guided by this, is going to be determined by other bodies. So state legislators, legislatures, and the federal legislature 
usually get a lot of deference in determining the eligibility of their own membership um, to the point that the federal government really, the federal courts don't really review those decisions by the federal legislature, by the House and the Senate. Similar dynamics exist with state legislature, right? And different state offices have this sort of role. So, so my concern is that this opens up a lot of reign where you're going to see potentially people adopting very strange interpretations of these very broad, not very well qualified or defined terms. And there's not going to be a clear avenue to getting some correction to the federal government through the federal judiciary uh, in all of those cases. So you think of like a state legislature beginning to exclude people. This might seem all sort of hypothetical and farcical, um, but so did Section 3 like five years ago, right, as a whole, right? We hadn't done anything with this provision in in a century. Um, And I do think reinvigorating it, uh, as will happen here, opens up a whole can of worms. Maybe that's worth it to say former President Trump and other people involved in January 6th aren't eligible for office. Maybe it's worth reinvigorating the idea, establishing precedent, saying Section 3 is a live issue, and then we get there. But it it makes me nervous. I think there are potential downsides here. One reason, I that's part of the reason I think the Supreme Court may not be super excited about leaning into this view of reinvigorating this, um, and they might take easy outs. I still think the 1872 statute Congress enacted that uses pretty broad language could provide that out, because uh, it says essentially... They're trying to remove disqualification from everyone at that time, except for a certain specified people. Bode and uh, his co-author point out that really should be read retroactively. That's how the Fourth Circuit read it. I think it's probably right on its face. I also don't know if that's the only interpretation, and you could see a court leaning the other way if they had strong kind of constitutional avoidance or other concerns that drove them in a different direction. Um, that's all just to say, you know, I think there is going to be other aspects and concerns motivating the court's decision here other than just pure principled originalism, which is likely to lead to a different outcome. And frankly, if it doesn't, I hope Congress actually considers installing some measures that constrain and restrict some of this. Like, I, you know, I would really hope Congress would consider enacting a law saying if something's First Amendment protected, it can't serve as a basis for Section 3 disqualification, which they can do if they get two-thirds of both chambers. Um, I think that's, that seems pretty well established by this article. I think that's really going to be necessary if we see this on the books. Otherwise, it could be used for a lot of nefarious purposes down the road. So that's my, that's my two cents concern about this. Um, I don't think it's not saying it's the end of democracy, but I do think it has negative potential consequences. So look, I so Bode and Paulson address, you know, is the issues of, for example, the George Floyd protests um, by saying that those aren't insurrections. They're not an effort to overthrow the government, per se. Um, and I find that pretty persuasive. I also think that they address this in a, a footnote where they say, you know, and this is a quote, what if the shoe were on the other foot? What if Trump had somehow succeeded in unlawfully holding a parent office after January 20th, 2021? Would comparable actions by Biden supporters have been have constituted an insurrection? We think not. And then in italics, the true facts matter. And I think to me, that's just what this comes down to. Like, yes, of course, if you have this thing on the books, people can use it in whatever way they like. But part of the intellectual exercise of this paper is saying this provision is in the Constitution. It means what it says it means, and we should act as such. And I think that, you know, at a certain point, the question is, do do we accept that things really are what they are? And if you want to go down the chain and say, well, but how do we negotiate over the meaning of this word and that word and so on and so forth, you can have those arguments. But at a certain point, you know, it's tr- either it's turtles all the way down or it's not. And there is some ground truth. And I think here, Bowden Paulson, and I would certainly agree, are staking a claim that there is a ground truth. January 6th was an insurrection. And that is categorically different than everything else, except for the Civil War. 
But do you not think there's a risk that aiding comfort enemy would be applied to Red Scare victims or, you know, people who were prosecuted for material? Sure, but you could make the same argument about impeachment, Scott, right? Like, remember when Trump was impeached, people were saying, oh, this is really dangerous because now the Republicans are going to impeach Biden. I think that if the question is, did somebody, you know, violate their oath? Uh, act wrongly as president, engage in insurrection against the U.S. government such that they are not eligible for office. They either did or they didn't. And you you can either take action based on the tools that are in the box that are available to you, or you can, you know, back into a defensive crouch and say, I'm not going to do this because somebody else might use it against me. And I just ultimately don't think that that's a productive means of reasoning at this point when it is abundantly clear that the sort of Trump wing of the Republican Party will do anything to anyone with whatever tool is available without an excuse. Well, uh, that I think you're you're strawmanning the argument a little bit here. The argument isn't that somehow like, you know, you're not able to use this as a tool. I, I'm, I'm not sure like it's not even I would even disagree with trying to bring these charges and inevitably someone's going to bring an effort to disqualify on the basis of this probably through a lot of different channels. Uh, I think the question is, A, like, you know, does this argument hold given that it's rooted in originalism principle and it's not clear that that's the only thing the court's going to weigh, like, you know, the court is going to weigh a lot of other equitable and broader meta-constitutional principles in deciding how to resolve that. But you no, you, you are framing this in terms of what the practical wisdom of doing it. And I'm saying, I, I think that I've considered the practical wisdom and I think that it's worth doing it anyway. I don't think I would frame it in terms of the practical wisdom of doing it. I'm talking about how the Supreme Court will think about it and how Congress should respond if it is reinvigorated. I mean, that's the latter point, right? Like, there is a mechanism for adjusting the negative consequences of this. And that's, I think, an important part of the conversation. Like, if we're going to reinvigorate this as a tool, why would we not take steps to focus it on conduct we find more objectionable? I don't think there is a, you know, and do I have reservations about reinvigorating it? Yeah, do you're right that insofar as I do have reservations about... Yeah, I'm responding to your reservations. But the reservations about undertaking action to do it doesn't necessarily, you know... Using to say, this is a tool in our toolkit, we have to use it for this, shouldn't blind us to the negative consequence of that. We need to be aware of it because you need to take additional steps to acknowledge it and address it. You know, If you can frame an argument narrowly, for example, to say, oh, we think we should adopt a narrower view of insurrection or rebellion and that's the right way to do it, that's a good thing. I think we should do it. I'm not sure it's going to withhold muster, right? Because I think there's actually a pretty compelling case. It's a very broad definition if you're going to accept it as a live one. But... I think that'd be better from a policy outcome. If you're going to go this full measure, I think you need to reconcile the fact that there are going to be really negative consequences of this potentially. It opens up a lot of messy doors. It is not, these doors are not as open today as they would be if this were actually to become a more common practice because common law matters, case precedent matters, and actually engaging in legal process does open the door for people to follow precedents. That's the nature of the common law system and of human institutions. So, you know, this is opening a door to negative consequences. Maybe it's worth it. That's fine. Like, it's an argument to say it's worth it. But I think people saying this gets Donald Trump out of office and it's a valid tool and we should use it for that purpose without acknowledging the downsides, that's, you know, not the complete picture. And we need to be, I think, humble when we start engaging in big, big legal moves like this to recognize the knock-on consequences down the road for a lot of people. And particularly in this case, that's going to affect like a lot of vulnerable people and marginalized political people down the road that aren't going to have a lot of other remedies. Like they're the people we usually rely on constitutional rights to protect. And this is a big carve out that will no longer protect them in this one space, which is participation in public office. 
Well, let's let us shift our conversation now from uh, discussing some one set of strong personalities to another notable strong personality that exists in our day to day lives in ways that we may never have anticipated or wished for. Uh, not but a couple of years ago. That is Mr. Elon Musk, a top popular topic of conversation here and in many places these days. The world's richest man, I think, still, despite Twitter, but I could be wrong about that at this point, who was profiled recently in The New Yorker uh, by Mr. Ronan Farrow, uh, who, of course, is carving out quite a name for himself in a variety of different fields and investigations, and now with these uh, pretty interesting profile of Musk, digging into a lot of different parts of his life, his personality, his business practices, but actually really opening with, and I think a, a focusing on a through line throughout, which is this pretty fascinating and interesting role that Musk has come to play in U.S. national security, particularly in relating to Ukraine, the Ukraine conflict, where Musk has depl- and did early on in the conflict deploy his Starlink system through his company SpaceX to provide essentially free wireless internet access throughout the battlefield in Ukraine, um, which has been heavily relied upon by Ukrainian military forces to implement a wide variety of techniques they're using that are proving very effective in pushing back against the Russian military, make advances against them, only for Musk to then later appear to throttle down access to that network in areas that were in dispute or that were Russian-held territories, and for him to openly flirt with the possibility that they should be pushing for peace and negotiated peace in Ukraine, including, although he wavers on this a little bit, potentially following conversations between him and Russian President Vladimir Putin. So it is a odd, odd role that he's found himself in where he's playing an integral role in the defense of Ukraine uh, and Ukrainian military efforts, even as he's talking with Putin, flirting with potentially with withholding or rescinding some of those services, demanding that the U.S. government start paying for it, which it appears to have done at least in part in the past few months. And all around, uh, really making himself a uniquely pivotal figure in this major foreign policy agenda for the Biden administration and really a major foreign policy priority item for the rest of the world. It's worth noting, this isn't the only place Musk seems to be ready to play this role. Um, SpaceX is a major, major player in the U.S. space program and in other countries' space programs. It's the main way right now we get astronauts to the International Space Station. Um, it's going to play a not not exclusive role, but a pretty dominant role in the Artemis mission that's aiming to return people to the moon and actually build a settlement there and begin to uh, exploit it for resources and to use it as a launching pad for further exploration of the solar system, which is a becoming a major national priority for the United States and lots of other governments. And there's lots of other ways, including Twitter and its role as a major public sphere, including Tesla uh, and the development of um, various types of automated vehicles and batteries involved with Tesla, all of which are really changing the ways a lot of us live our lives day to day. And so it's interesting to see all of these major, major forces in our lives that have major, major policy relevance hinge on a person whose politics are uniquely mercurial and strange, Musk having famously said just a year or two ago that he's going to vote for a Republican for the first time, having openly uh, hosted Ron DeSantis in his somewhat flawed debut speech on Twitter, um, openly flirting with people kind of associated with the alt-right in various regards on Twitter and elsewhere. And even when he wasn't in that phase, a person known for fairly eclectic and mercurial behavior on a lot of fronts. So, you know, the real question I think is, is it a good thing that so much of our national policy is hanging on this individual, not to mention potentially our global stability. And is that the right way to think about this? And is there ways that the U.S. government should be approaching this to try and hedge some of those risks? 
Natalie, what do you think about this? I know you are a, a skeptic of our conversations of Elon Musk generally, uh, which inevitably happen here at Lawfare on occasion. But I'd be curious about your takes on this profile uh, and what it makes you think about Musk's role kind of in the policy sphere. Yeah, I mean, the short answer to your question of is it a good thing that the, um, the United States and the rest of the world and the stability, et cetera, et cetera, are so reliant on one person is no, absolutely not. These sorts of big things that affect millions and millions of people and the way we live our lives and all of that should should not be subject to the whims of one person. It's That's just not the way the world should work. I think one thing that I thought was a, a theme running through this article that seemed very spot on to me was this idea that uh, Musk has sought out business opportunities, particularly in these sorts of areas that you were describing, where they are really, really crucial areas in terms of the basics of what we need, but also the sort of frontiers of progress, like space exploration and electric vehicles and such, but in areas where the government has really receded. And so there's been a, you know, probably quite understandable acceptance of Musk and his businesses occupying these spaces because it's just they've been found to be areas where the government, for whatever reason, is not able to conduct itself in in an effective enough manner or it's not enough of a priority politically or what have you. So it, it almost reads like a business model or business philosophy to target in particular these areas, which is you know, to the extent it's profit motivated, that seems, you know, that seems less like a less generous interpretation. I think a an interpretation that the article also invites people to make is that Elon Musk just really wants to be helpful in a lot of ways. And he wants to bring his acumen and agility as a business person to uh, these different areas where there is a need um, I think there was a, a quote that caught my eye from Sam Altman that who he said, um, Elon desperately wants the world to be saved, but only if he can be the one to save it. So I, you know, I don't like to pass judgment on individuals I've never met. But part of the reason I'm a skeptic of these conversations is sort of exactly that. There's a lot of armchair psychology interpretations of who Elon Musk is as a man and what that means for his business enterprises and the type of work that they do and the type of influence they have on all of our lives, only some of which I think anyone is qualified to make. And I think inevitably the conversation becomes about a bit of a cult of personality that he either has cultivated or people have cultivated around him. And I think all of that is sort of beside the point, though, the larger issues of, for example, SpaceX's monopoly on satellites and um, it's the fact that so much of what Musk does is so powerful that even the government can't really restrict him as there were several examples of that in the article. But um, I'll stop talking and, and pass it to you, Quinta. What were, what were your thoughts after reading this very long profile? Yeah, Natalie, to build on what you were saying, I think reading the article, it made me think about sort of giants of 
early American capitalism, I guess, or maybe not early, mid-American capitalism in the late 1800s during the Gilded Age and the early 1900s. Um, I mean, you know, people like John D. Rockefeller or Andrew Carnegie, who sort of held a outsized role, not only in the sense that they were incredibly wealthy for the time period, but also had enormous amounts of control over sort of developing industries that were newly crucial for the country's economy and for state capacity, right, in terms of thinking about um, standard oil or the construction of the railway system, right? I think that there's a temptation maybe to look at Musk and diagnose him as a uniquely modern or postmodern, you know, figure of late capitalism, which people used to mean just sort of a vibe, I think, more rather than like the actual Marxist definition of the term. But there are plenty of sort of predecessors that we can look to like this for situations where corporations and mercurial individuals took such an outsized role, um, if not, you know, in the particular form that we're seeing now. Um, but I do think, you know, you see that in terms of like the colonization of the American West, right? Or like the role of the East India Company in the colonization of uh, South Asia. Um, that there's there's sort of, a, there are forerunners that we can look to here. And I don't think they're particularly salutary, shall we say, in terms of what they say about the wisdom of the government sort of backing itself into or choosing to allow uh corporation or uh, individual to have sort of such kind of outsized power over the way that things are run. I agree with that. But I also think there's a potential for these cases being overstated and kind of a, a unique sort of negotiation element that are the unique American political and legal context kind of sets these cases in, right? The, the thing that makes me think of the most is kind of the World War II and immediately post era where we saw the uh, Roosevelt administration and the Truman administration engage in a lot of efforts to nationalize certain industries or pressure certain industries to engage in price controls or production chests to accommodate the war effort. Youngstown case that we all know from from any sort of separation of powers cases is kind of the most famous last example of these. It's kind of like the last gasp effort that failed. Um, before that, they actually had a number of cases that were pretty successful. One of the most notable ones is this Montgomery Ward seizure um, that uh, I've taught about in a class I teach on, on war powers with Matt Waxman, who brought this case to my attention to his credit uh, up at Columbia. And uh, it's a fascinating case where essentially, you know, the Roosevelt administration essentially nationalized Montgomery Ward, a major department store, because it had a the massive logistics chain around the country and was in a position to deliver all sorts of goods and prices all sorts of goods. It's kind of the Amazon of its day, um, if you will, but to the point that they actually had to physically remove the very eccentric owner, uh, Aver, Mr. Avery, I can't remember his name, I think is his name. Uh, so there are these pictures of him being carried out by federal agents in a chair, as if it's kind of a sedan chair, as this old man smiles to himself and refuses to move from his office as they install like the federal government, you know, official to actually run this business for him. Now, that would be a, seeing Elon Musk. Perhaps. That's <laughs> kind of, yes, though. For the simple <laughs> reason that there's a little bit of a push in a poll here. Like these companies and organizations and particularly eccentric individuals can get away with a lot, right? But there's a limit to that. Because ultimately, the government still has a lot of authority and could exercise more authority, particularly where it has the real political intent to do so, and frankly, particularly where it intersects with foreign affairs and national security. Now, 
the Montgomery Ward case, that was all pursuant to a statutory regime that ended with the war. And that's part of the reason why Youngstown came out kind of differently, right? Although there's a strong element of kind of executive power debates in both contexts. But here we have things like the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, um, which is used for a huge broad range of purposes. And you could see the federal government um, using it in a variety of ways that could make things very awkward and difficult for Starlink and for other enterprises um, that Musk might be involved in if he really were to start becoming a policy problem. Now, can they coerce him into keep doing things for free? No, probably not, right? That's the trick. Like, we always have this fallback kind of takings clause argument in U.S. law where the government can force take things and force people to do a lot, but it always owes people compensation. But when the real competitive advantage is in an individual or a company is uniquely able to provide a service, I, I actually think there's often a case to say, again, particularly in foreign affairs and national security contexts, that Congress certainly, and in many cases the executive branch, probably can do a lot to begin to co-opt that if it really push comes to shove. And it's rarely in the interests of these business leaders to push the envelope so far that the government feels compelled to do that at a certain point. In this case, asking the government to pay for the service in Ukraine was, you know, not fundamentally unreasonable, I don't think. Again, the Musk isn't any, under any obligation to keep providing this for free, something he did for several months at, at the cost of his own company, right? Although it's a good thing to do, and I'm glad he did it. And I hope, wish he would keep doing it. I'm glad the government's paying him to keep doing it now, right? Like it's a good thing for Ukraine. It's a good thing for the world. But uh, you know, if he were to start using it much more strategically in ways that advance certain policy agendas were much more coercive or problematic, I, I kind of think there are ways the government could explore pushing back on him, and there's good reasons for him not to start doing that. And I think that those tools are actually going to be more important in kind of a coming era where, frankly, especially cutting-edge technology is going to play such a more dominant role in international security because we're de dealing with near-peer rivals, right? We're no longer fighting terrorist groups that have nothing near the technological capability of the United States. We're dealing with China and Russia, countries with major industrial bases, major technology sectors, particularly China, um, that rival our own. And so you want to encourage companies to do everything they can to be developed and technologically on the cutting edge, but you need to have some tools to rein them in if it goes too far. And that is kind of the balance here. That's that's the threat that's overhanging a lot of what Musk is doing. I don't think he's totally unaware of it. Um, and maybe it'll get to the point where he or somebody else will go so far outside the bounds that the government will have to use these authorities or develop them in the case of Congress and knock them back in line. But they have done it before. I think they will do it again. And I don't think these companies are ultimately unaware of that. So I do think there are some outer bounds on how much fuckery they can get up to, to, to put it concisely. I mean, that may be true, but we haven't seen what the outer bounds are. And I'm a little scared by what they might be because I think, you know, I don't disagree with you that it's reasonable mm -hmm. that the U.S. government should start paying at some point for what was a pro bono service of providing Starlink. But the way in which he secured that contract was to start cutting off service to people in active combat zones where people were dying. And all of a sudden, the Defense Department, with really no notice whatsoever, had to negotiate a contract to pay for these services. That's just a really auspicious way to start looking at the intersection of these services provided by a private entity and, and the government role in typically occupying that space. And so you may be right that there's there are ultimately means by which the government can push back, but I don't know when they think they're going to get there, given the outsized power that private individuals of this stature can have. 
And I really fear what it's going to look like until they do get there. Well, folks, we are well over our time for this week. Uh, so we will have to leave the discussion there. But this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with a few object lessons to ponder over in the week to come. Quinta, what did you bring to share with us this week? I would like to share a Washington Post article about my personal new favorite uh, January 6th co-conspirator in the federal indictment slash co-defendant in the Georgia state indictment, and that is one Kenneth Chesborough, sadly not pronounced Cheeseborough, according to this Washington Post reporting. So this is just, it's a fascinating story about Chesborough, who was the lawyer involved in, really, it seems like uh, spearheading the fake electors plan. Um, There's a lot alleged against him in the federal January 6th indictment and in the Georgia indictment. And the post story kind of goes into like who this guy is. Um, He used to be very close to uh, one Harvard law professor, Larry Tribe, which is an interesting turn of events um, and appears to have gotten sort of turned toward the right uh, after he made a small fortune on Bitcoin investments. Um, And he, nobody knew where he was. It seems like the Washington Post reporter may have found him in Puerto Rico, but it is not 100% clear. And he's kind of been the dark horse in this whole thing. He hasn't had as much of a public presence as uh, many of the other figures. So I highly, highly recommend this article. Oh, and I should also say that CNN recently reported that he uh, was at, seems to have actually been at January 6th, weirdly trailing Alex Jones, which nobody noticed until now. And I guess CNN figured it out by looking at the footage, but they confirmed with folks who know him that that is indeed Chesbro. So well, they say he did not go to the Capitol. They have no evidence he went to the Capitol. He was just there, but he wasn't. Oh, sure. Yes. Sorry. Sorry. I should have clarified. Charging. Just to yes. clarify why yes. he hasn't been charged or anything like that. Um, yeah. Thank you, Scott. Um, but yeah, so he is my stealth pick for weirdest January 6th co-conspirator. And I highly recommend this article. And it's not a short list, guys. There's, there's no, some. Th- he has some there. stiff competition. Yeah. Well, for my object lesson this week, I am sharing the competition, another bit of competition in the podcast realm. Uh, and that is a phenomenal new podcast series that I binged on a long drive back from the beach this past weekend. That is Spy Valley, uh, a podcast being produced by our friends at Goat Rodeo. It is a six-part series. I think the last episode comes out today or at least this week. I'm digging into a spy case that I had never heard of but is actually pretty exceptional about a gentleman named John Harper who in the 70s and 80s essentially sold huge swaths of America's most sensitive nuclear and related rocketry uh, secrets to the Soviet bloc kind of on a scheme entirely of his own creation involving several girlfriends, uh, a clear alcohol problem, um, a bunch of other people with alcohol problems, and most, like, kind of interestingly, a bunch of really, bunch of, for lack of a better way to describe it, were kind of like proto-Silicon Valley bros, um, people who are very early innovators and entrepreneurs, including him. He's actually the guy who invented the digital stopwatch and had a company to do it before he uh, was accused of embezzling money from them and kicked out of the leadership of this company that he started. But it's a fascinating figure in the host Zach Dorfman um, does this incredible job of having actually tracked down Harper, who was released from prison in his mid-80s just a few years ago, and actually getting this firsthand account of this crazy scheme he put together and the crazy set of people that he roped into it, all seemingly very on board with selling nuclear secrets to the Soviet bloc, uh, in part because they're people who believe in kind of free trade and we're kind of free trade libertarians. And it's such an interesting parallel um, with certain values we hear in 
um, Silicon Valley today and that lead to weird political outcomes in people heavily involved in uh, Silicon Valley and kind of the ethos that undergirds certain industries there. It's fascinating. I also had a great conversation with Zach on the Lawfare podcast earlier this week that really dug into kind of his interpretation of this and its relevance today. And that's really worth a listen. So I can't recommend enough. It's a great lesson, great story, Spy Valley. Check it out. Natalie, how about you? I have a very short, but hopeful, and also much more, um, let us say, simple object lesson. Because I don't have time to read or listen to podcasts these days other than what I'm reading for work. And obviously listening to the Lawfare podcast, including Rational Security when I'm not on it. But my object lesson is this new type of ice cream sandwich that I discovered that is called Nightingale. And I'm not sure if it's a local DC thing or not, but it is because it's only available at the little market near my house where I shop sometimes. And it is delightful because it is cookies that are sort of of the home-baked type variety with really good ice cream and unique flavors. And my favorite flavor is called Cookie Monster, which is just a delightful name for an ice cream sandwich. And so, yeah, everyone go out, look for Nightingale ice cream sandwiches. You can eat them while listening to the podcast, listening to our podcast, or listening to Spy Valley at Scott's suggestion or reading the article in the Washington Post at Quinta's suggestion. I just realized that I, I have eaten those ice cream sandwiches. I think they're a local DC thing, and I can attest that they are very good. <laughs> well, there you go. Screw you, rest of the country. <laughs> For you <laughs> watching metropolitan area listeners, get on those ice cream sandwiches. Well, folks, on that tasty note, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare, so be sure to visit us at lawfaremedia.org for our show page, for links to past episodes, for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series. While you're at it, be sure to follow us on Twitter or X at RATL Security, and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. In addition, sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon at patreon.com slash lawfare for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week is Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo, and her music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co-host Quinta and our special guest Natalie Orpit, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.